Welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. I am Justin Landon, and with me tonight is blogger and author Aiden Mower. Aiden runs the popular genre blog, A Dribble of Ink, for which he won a 2014 Hugo. He's also the author of a short story collection titled Tide of Shadows that he recently self-published. Welcome, Aiden. Hi. Thanks for having me back, Justin. Uh, glad to have you. Are you aware there's another book called Tide of Shadows? It's a self-published book. Has a blurb by M.R. Matthias. I uh, I don't know who that is, but I can't believe you don't know who M.R. Matthias is. He's like the guy who self-published writer who was like in prison, and he made all these sock puppet accounts, and he went on Fantasy Faction and wrote some long screed attacking them. Do you not? Is that you don't remember uh, any of this? No, I missed that. I don't miss much on the internet, but I miss that. He's that kind. Of, he's kind of like the new Robert Stanek. Oh wow. I will, uh, I'll have to do some. You're going to have to investigate this guy. Is it Robert Stanek? I don't know. That'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be. I wouldn't put it past Stanek. I wouldn't either. But, uh, he lost his legs in a prison fight and changed his name. <laughs> Was that, uh, Adam Whitehead that discovered the no legs thing? Was that his great discovery? Uh, I'm not sure. That, that sounds about right. Um, Adam's written a few, uh, exposés on Stanek's, uh, career. So it might have been Adam. So for those who aren't aware of the Robert Stanek phenomenon, he was a self-published writer that rose to, uh, prominence is the wrong word, like infamy, maybe? Yeah, I'd say infamy is about, about right. Maybe five, seven years ago, and he uh, it was the guy who sort of pioneered the sock puppeting, right, of like creating all of these things around his fiction and being like, not writing anything, really. His writing was just, it was like... Like something he fed into a computer and it just spit it out. But he was all about marketing, marketing, marketing. I remember I was uh, I was almost fooled by him way back in the day before I started blogging. Uh, he had all these great reviews online. His story was about elves. I liked elves, and I kept looking and looking, and you know everything seemed fine on Amazon until I started digging elsewhere for reviews and, and realize what was going on but uh that was an era before self-publishing had sort of hit its stride and become a more legitimate platform for authors and you know here's this guy claiming to have sold you know fifty thousand books or whatever he was saying and uh you know he almost pulled the, the wool over my eyes but uh, i smartened up well so that's an interesting segue into sort of like the idea behind self-publishing and kind of where it's come you know, five or seven, I mean, five years ago is probably a little too recent, but, you know, seven years ago when things really started to spin up, like self-publishing was this weird mystical thing that really nobody understood and nobody took seriously. I mean, on the one hand, you have huge successes from authors who started in self-publishing, uh, E.L. James and Hugh Howey, and sort of worked their way up uh, to more mainstream traditional publishing deals. And on the flip side, you have well-established authors who are choosing to become sort of hybrid published authors. So they're sticking with their traditional uh, deals for some of their larger series and then going self-pubbed for, uh, you know, short fiction or sort of novels that, that didn't really have a home at their regular publisher. So they're, they're sort of striking out on their own. So you have a self-published uh, ecosystem now that has a, a lot of good work from a lot of big name authors. Um, and I think that's changed over the past few years for a number of reasons, um, including just tools available to authors. I think, um, I think it's becoming easier and easier to put out uh, a book by yourself uh, than it used to be. I feel like now we've sort of come out the other side maybe a little bit. I'm going to get your take on this. Is So for a while we had this, like, uh, this time where you could be 
kind of half-assed it as a self-publisher, and if you wrote something half-decent, like, you could probably sell a few copies of it because the expectations weren't there that it sort of measure up in terms of copy editing or, uh, or cover art or, or, you know, all these different things that people care a lot more about in self-publishing now than maybe they did when it first started. But now, but now we've got to the point where it's almost like there's an expectation of almost professional-level polish on a, a self-publishing project. Uh, like we're not in that middle ground anymore where it can be uh, not as polished and be good and do well. Now it almost has to be as polished as it is in traditional publishing, or at least that's what it seems like. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. We're no longer really riding the tsunami. Um, we're sort of picking through the aftermath where it's changed the landscape. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity there, but uh, it's become sort of tougher uh, to to really break out and become a big success on a whim. Um, one of my big uh, goals with my own self-published book, Tide of Shadows and Other Stories, was to produce something that I felt stood up to the professional standards of the big publishers putting books out there. I wanted good cover art. I wanted uh, text inside the book that was spotless. Um, and so I took my little limited budget that I set aside for myself and I, I prioritized. I, I set myself again some goals to find um, solutions to that. I hired a copy editor, one of the best in the business. His name's Richard Sheely, and he works with a lot of the, the bigger uh, science fiction and fantasy imprints, including Angry Robot. And then I went and found a cover artist that I really liked. I cut some corners because I'm, I'm a designer by day, so I was able to do a lot of the design work, typography, uh, layout for my cover, so all I needed was a good piece of art. But uh, setting aside some money to do that from the get-go, having this goal of having a professional quality book was something that I think set me ahead of, of some of the other uh, books coming out of the self-published world, uh, just in that regard. Yeah, I think there's a a real challenge these days uh, in sort of just that ability to separate. I mean, certainly, there's just so much more now. I mean, I was, you know, a quick sidebar. It, my, my birthday is tomorrow. and Happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting almost, I'm in, like, officially in my mid-30s now, which is incredibly depressing. But nevertheless, um, <laughs> my, my mother uh, sent me a present for my birthday. She sent me a Kindle Voyage, which is the new e-reader from Amazon. It's like their newest one, and it's fantastic. It's an incredible piece of technology. And so I was just browsing through the Kindle store <clears throat> on my new Kindle Voyage, and of course, because it's a Kindle and it's Amazon, right? Like they're just shoving things in your face that are like in Kindle Unlimited or, you know, available through sort of the Kindle lending library, so to speak. So, which is largely self-published stuff or stuff published through Amazon, uh, through their various imprints. And I'm just blown away by like how much of it there is. It just goes on. It's like endless how much stuff is being self-published these days. And uh, like I, 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 and you think about all the things that aren't being self-published that are out on submission, and it's like, my God, there is so much creativity being plugged into the marketplace right now uh, because of these barriers coming down that I just can't imagine what it must have been like to sort of wade into that. <laughs> it was terrifying for me. A lot of the reason I chose to put the book out was because I sort of, I had this collection of stories that kept sort of yelling at me and I couldn't really let them go. And so I wanted a way to release them to the larger public. And whether that resulted in crickets or, you know, a bunch of roaring fans, uh, I wasn't really sure. 
and I didn't really, in a way, I didn't care. I just needed to be able to move on. But um, what I have found is that you're absolutely right about there being this incredible gulf of self-published work out there, and it's very hard to uh, kind of rise to the top of it. Um, where I've had my most success in marketing my book is when I treat it as though it's more of a traditionally published book. Um, I'm, I got a bit of coverage through io9 um, and, you know, here on Rocket Talk and through my own blog and Twitter and stuff like that and, and trying to treat it like a, a product that I am marketing uh, rather than, hey, here's my self-published book, please buy it. I've also attempted to do some of the self-publishing tricks that people have talked about. I read a lot about it beforehand. And it's interesting that you bring up Kindle Unlimited in the Amazon ecosystem because I chose uh, to publish solely through Amazon because of the things that I felt like they offered self-published authors uh, like inclusion in the Kindle Unlimited program. So far for my collection, I've had a lot more success selling books. To readers than I have getting boros through the Kindle Unlimited program, um, but like by orders of magnitude. And so when my three-month contract with Amazon is up, I'm going to pull it out of the program and put it on other stores because I just don't have the savvy to compete against the other sort of dedicated self-publishers who know those systems back and forth are publishing, you know, 15, 20 books a year because they're putting out these, you know, 20,000 word novellas um, and Kindle daily deals, countdown deals, all of those sorts of things that are available to them. It becomes a huge rat race. And for me, maybe because I have a blog that has a, a you know, a pretty big following, uh, I won a, a, an award last year, that helps me sort of market my book from a more traditional angle. I'm surprised by that. I thought it was going to be more uh, of a push from the, the sort of self-pub perspective, but you just never know. Yeah, and that's uh, one of the things I've talked a lot about, you know, not necessarily as an author, but just as somebody who interacts in this community. As, so, like, I was a non-entity in the community at all, uh, you know, as much as three or four years ago. Like, I didn't have a blog. I'd never interacted in fan spaces before. I'd never gone to a convention. You know, and then, you know, fast forward four years, I co-chaired the literary program for Worldcon. I'm, you know, involved with Tor.com at, you know, several different levels. And uh, I had a blog that was pretty, pretty successful and all these things. And people say, well, how did that happen? And I said, well, because I put in the work before I asked for anything, right? Like I put in the work and never, never, uh, it was sort of like no expectation of gain. And so I, I'm curious about it as you kind of look at your blogging experience with a dribble of ink. I mean, you put a lot of work into building a platform with sort of like no real concept of what it would turn into and how you could leverage it like you just did it because you wanted to. And now you find a way to sort of maybe leverage some of that platform. And I think there's something like readers and people involved in the community have like a bullshit tech detector that's pretty legit. And so like when somebody's just marketing and trying to create a marketing thing, it's like super obvious. Like, do you think it was, it aided you that you had sort of laid this groundwork for as long as you have? Yeah, absolutely. I, I started a dribble of ink eight years ago, um, almost to the day now. And when I did that, science fiction fantasy blogging was an entirely different uh, beast than it is now. You did it entirely sort of for 
the love of it um, to become a voice in the community. Uh, I, you know, obviously wasn't laying the groundwork back then expecting it to become a, um, you know, a tool for me to sell books. However, I made some decisions way back then that I think helped me. Uh, I've always blogged under my own name at AidenMoher.com. And that was an intentional choice eight years ago to always kind of retain uh, this identity as Aiden Moher rather than just a dribble of ink. Uh, and I think that's helped in some ways. Um, and I think just putting eight years of sort of passion and love into the community has absolutely helped me gain a little bit of goodwill and a, a little bit of, um, you know, just leeway with readers. They trust me maybe a little more than they do just um, some random um, author who's coming along trying to sell their their uh, their book. And that's not to say that I haven't made some mistakes in, in the way that I've been marketing it. Um, I'm trying a lot of different things. Some things, you know, don't stick. And like you say, that bullshit detector among fans is on a, uh, a hairpin trigger and it goes off as soon as you do something that is even remotely you know, ineffective or slimy or uh, exploitive. And I watch the results. I listen to what people have to say. And I try to to navigate through that and find the most effective means of, uh, of marketing myself as an author. People know me as a blogger. I want them to know me as an author. Coming all the way back around to it, I find that the most effective way of doing that is to con- continue to just be a blogger that, you know, people want to read. Um, the more people reading my blog, the more they kind of get exposed to this idea that, Hey, I also have a book out there. Hey, I'm also writing other short stories. I'm working on a novel. Um, and it's a long tail, uh, sort of adventure I'm on. It's not going to create a ton of, you know, sales right off the bat. I don't have the marketing push that major publishers have, uh, but I do hope that it creates uh, just a sense that, you know, this guy's put a lot of a lot of work in into science fiction fantasy. Um, maybe his book's good, but I do also think that that's working on my blog has also created connections that I wouldn't otherwise have. Um, you know, being invited today to uh, to be on Rocket Talk uh, is something that probably wouldn't exist to me if I wasn't a long kind of tenured member of the science fiction fantasy uh, online community. Charlie Jane, Charlie Jane from io9 probably wouldn't have contacted me uh, about the book, probably wouldn't have put it in one of their blog posts about May science fiction and fantasy releases if she wasn't aware of me because of my blog. So lots of variables there. Uh, you put in the work, you spend a lot of time, uh, a lot of elbow grease getting there, and then hopefully it, it pays off for you in the end. Uh, let's talk a little bit about why you decided to publish this. And you kind of touched on it a little bit when you said um, that these stories had sort of been hanging in the back of your mind for a while and you just felt like you wanted to do something with them. And so the undertone of that, obviously, is that these are stories that you, I don't know about all of them, but certainly many of them you have tried to sell to traditional short fiction markets, right? Yeah, yeah. All of them, to varying degrees, went through the propane short fiction markets. Places like Clark's World, um, Lightspeed Magazine, Apex, uh, the you know top tier magazines, and they you know they also have varying levels of success. Um, and the ones that ended up in the book are the ones that I felt confident about, still feel confident about, and a lot of them almost made it. 
you know, made it past slush readers, made it into a period where they're being considered by, you know, the, the actual editors of, of the magazine, or I received feedback saying it was, you know, this close or that close, or this is why it just didn't work. Um, and at first it was so easy to get discouraged by that because it was like, you know, these editors that I look up to, that I respect, uh, that I desperately want to, uh, publish my work, you know, were saying no. Um, and it's easy to, to think of that as, you know, a, a judgment of quality, somebody, you know, a gatekeeper turning you away. Um, but a lot of my success with A Dribble of Ink also led to me eventually coming around to the idea that I've been self-publishing my work for eight years now. I've been self-publishing a lot of nonfiction, um, you know, reviews, essays, opinion pieces, interviews, things that I have, you know, actively created, edited myself and have the confidence in publishing. I believe they're good enough to find an audience. And, and so I realized that even though these stories weren't necessarily hitting with the pro markets, um, I could maybe go and, and send them off to the semi pro markets. I, I expect most of them would have been published there, but I crunched some numbers and realized I, you know, I only had to sell a fairly small and amount of my book, small number of my book to actually exceed the revenue I would have made off these semi-pro uh, markets. And so that coupled with sort of the confidence I'd found in, in a dribble of ink success convinced me that, you know, it's time to, to take um, responsibility for these stories. If I believe in them, put them out there. Uh, if it allows me to, to move on and start working on, you know, the next stories, then that's a, a bonus there as well. And I can say, based on the re response I've had to Tide of Shadows, I've been writing like crazy lately. Um, incredibly inspired by the people who have been reading and saying nice things about my book. That's an interesting sub subplot to the whole thing that never really occurred to me as I sort of watched you undergo this journey, both publicly and sort of privately, obviously, because you and I have had a lot of conversations about it over the last couple of, you know, last, I don't know, two years, really. Yep. Um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, something I'd never considered would just sort of be that benefit to your own creative process where, like, you've finally seen something that you've done out there. Like, people other than the 15 or 20 people that have read these stories uh, are reading them or at least can read them and how that sort of urges you forward. I think that's one of the things that a lot of traditionally published writers uh, don't really think about when they see somebody self-publish and wonder why maybe they did that. Um, One of the um, most surprising things that I've found is that a lot of the support I've received for the book hasn't been coming from necessarily my publishing industry or my blogging or my writing friends, uh, though they've been supportive as well, but people I've never heard of, um, people I've never met on Twitter or anywhere um, have reached out to me to tell me how excited they are for the book, how much they enjoyed the book. Um, and that, that in and of itself was incredibly invigorating. I wasn't expecting it. I thought I might sell, you know, 50 copies of my book, you know, 25 to my family, 25 to Twitter friends, and that would be it. Uh, but it's been selling faster than I expected. And like I said, there's been a, a, a great amount of support from just readers which is all I think a writer can ask for. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. And for those who don't know um, and haven't uh, got the collection yet, I mean, what, what kind of stuff are you writing? Right. I 
I write science fiction fantasy. One of the underlying themes in some of the comments that, that I've got and the reviews that people have posted is that they're constantly surprised by the, the variety in the collection. So there's five stories. Um, one of them is sort of a, a gritty epic fantasy with a cast of, you know, a dozen characters has a, a unique structure in the way that it, um, you know, watches the protagonist bury his, his dead soldier comrades, uh, but also flashes back to see the last moments of those comrades life. So it's very kind of visceral and, and, and intense. It's followed up by a very, an experimental steampunk slash science fiction mashup about a girl living in a, a futuristic community. There's been an accident previously, and all of a sudden she has grafted onto her this enormous set of, of iron wings. And it's about her trying to come to grips with, with this change. But there's also the subtext of, of trying to figure out who who she is, why, why she exists, why she has these wings. Uh, that then is followed by a satirical fairy tale about uh, a dragon and a princess, an adventure and sort of a love triangle, triangle that has an ending I don't think readers will necessarily expect. There's a little flash piece in there um, that I really enjoy. I feel like it was sort of inspired a little bit by Neil Gaiman, it's it's snappy, it's really kind of intensely packed with a lot of world building and character building. Um, it's fantasy only in that there's this ghost dog that may or may not exist. Um, and finally, the, the title story, Tide of Shadows, is a military science fiction story. Um, it's about, you know, genocide and colonialism, but it's also about the intense relationships that Soldiers form uh, when thrust into a situation where they have to fend for their lives, but also seek revenge years later. Uh, so every story in the collection is, is different. I think one of the underlying themes is, is relationships between characters. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's something that's common in a lot of books, but it's something I really enjoy playing with. So while the stories on the outside look very different from one another, there is uh, something tying it all together in the end. I have to assume that's sort of you sort of feeling out what you want to write ultimately. You know, I suspect that a lot of young and new writers sort of dabble in all these different genres before they kind of figure out where their, where their muse is going to take them uh, and where, the, where they're going to finally sit down. Sure, yeah. I wrote a novel in my mid-20s. Um, it was not great. It had a lot of heart. Uh, <laughs> I like that. But after, uh, after that, I, you know... Even at that time, I had enough perspective to say, okay, you know, like that was a really intense um, period writing that. I really love this book. It's not very good. I sort of know what's wrong with it. So I identified some of the situations and I was like, okay, I could go back and edit it. And I was like, I'm not good enough to edit it and make it a readable novel yet. I know what I can do. I'll take each of these issues. I'll address them by writing short fiction that's sort of keyed in to trying to get better at, you know, writing snappy dialogue, at creating motivation within characters that makes sense and drives them forward in a natural way. And so I turned to short fiction, the idea being that I'd write short fiction solely for a year. That's all I was going to write. I wasn't going to touch my novel. Um, and that just never really sort of stopped. Like you said, it's, it's an incredibly experimental place to write. It allows me to take risks that I couldn't necessarily take if I was trying to write a novel. 
If I'm sitting down to spend a year or two or three of my life working on a piece of fiction, I need to have confidence about that. Whereas if I'm going to spend two weeks, uh, you know, writing and revising a short story, I'm happy to take some risks. I'm happy to go out there and, um, you know, explore a little bit more. And I think that's one of the great things about reading short fiction is you find writers who are passionate about exploring the limits of science fiction fantasy in a way that novels have difficulty doing uh, for a variety of creative and, and business reasons. We've touched a little bit on, you know, the nature of uh, you, the author here now with this new collection. And I, I can't have you on the show without talking a little bit about blogging uh, at least in, in more detail than we already have. And as we talked already, you know, you're the, the, uh, raconteur behind a dribble of ink and have been for eight years. And although you know, you don't write, uh, reviews or essays maybe as often as you once did, they're probably three times as long now as they once were when you do write them. (laughs) I'd be curious to get your take on kind of where we're at in the blogging world. Uh, you know, as, as, Many people know I closed my blog at the end of last year and frankly don't really regret it very much other than the occasional crazy moment where I want to post something that nobody else would ever touch but that I would like to post. Uh, but it seems to me that blogging as we know it is is not gone but but changing quickly. What do you think? Um it's probably blasphemy for me to say this, but I, I, I agree with you. Blogging used to be like a central linchpin in the discussion of science fiction and fantasy online. It's where all the interesting writing happened. But with the rise of websites like Tor.com, like io9, um, you have the best bloggers who are making a name for themselves, maybe on an individual blog. Um, being taken in by these larger entities. Um, it's a great way for the larger websites like Tor.com to get an awesome group of writers working for them. Um, and once you hit that point, you're getting paid to write a review here, or you can do it sort of on your own personal blog is difficult to kind of stick to, um, to stick to an unpaid gig. And so, I don't think the personal blog is going to go away. I think it's always going to be a place for new voices to to find their way, um, to create a bit of a name for themselves. But I think it's becoming increasingly more difficult to um, to join the fray in that way. You have to offer something more than just covering the same news um, as everybody else or writing reviews of the same books. I... Um, I get away with it on my blog a little bit because I have such a large readership. Um, a lot of my work on my blog now is sort of editorial or writing little news blurbs. And like you say, I'll write an essay or review here and there, but I usually leave the long form stuff to the, to the writers I pull in. Um, I don't know where things are going from, from here for blogging. I think it's changing. I think Twitter has changed the landscape. No discussion, no commentary happens on on smaller blogs anymore. I struggle to get any comments on my reviews or my long-form stuff. It all happens on Twitter or Reddit, which is great. It still happens. But a blog as a watering hole 
I think is a concept that that has passed. And so it doesn't really, I don't believe it actually matters where you publish your stuff anymore. You can publish it as a series of tweets on Twitter because, hey, we have Storify. You can publish it on medium.com, which is basically, you know, a, a long form writing tool uh, where I've been publishing some more experimental writing and had a really great res response to it. Um, you can pitch some of the larger websites. You can write it on a forum. You can post it on Reddit. I mean, if you post something on Reddit, write a nice big review, you have 75,000 readers who are potentially going to click on that. Um, nothing drives traffic like Reddit. And so all of a sudden, it doesn't necessarily make sense to have a little silo where all your writing happens. Um, I'm really curious to see where things go. But I, uh, I don't know. I don't yeah. have a, a crystal ball. <laughs> I, think, I think that's actually a great point. And, and although you sort of point out that some of the larger blogs have siphoned off talent, so to speak, and they have, I think that's true. Um, I, I even wonder now sometimes what the long-term, you know, stability of writing blogging is even on major, on these major websites, because you're right. Like I can publish something on medium or tour.com or, uh, staffers book review or porno kitsch or any other number of places. And largely the traffic is going to be driven not by the inherent readership, but by the places that it's linked. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Way more important to get your work linked to by people on Twitter or Reddit than it is having a built-in readership. You know, I can I have a readership of 30,000 probably um, on a monthly basis. I can post something, you know, a review. If I don't tweet it, if it doesn't get posted to Reddit, if it's not on Facebook, doesn't take off anywhere in social media, you know, I'll be lucky if it gets a hundred page views. Yeah, I, I you know I I pay attention on Tor.com obviously because it's you know that you can actually see the um if, if you go into the I forget where it is exactly but I don't know if it's just if I write the article or if I comment on the article or whatever but if you go into the Tor.com profiles on the old version of Tor.com you could see how many page views different uh, pages were getting or different posts were getting and of course yeah. I O nine puts theirs pretty prominently as well and or all of Gawker does <clears throat> but um. And, you know, Tor will do this sort of like uh, five questions with an author, you know? Yeah. And those I might do... one today. <laughs> yeah, right. And those will do a, a very modest traffic number because they are not... Uh, they, while they're cute and fun, they're not necessarily like of interest, right? There's not a lot of controversial stuff being said in there. So they might do, you know, on the first day, they might do 700 page views or 1,000 page views, which is good, but but not certainly representative of Tor.com's readership. Not blowing your socks off. Right. And then you'll see like the reread posts for like a modestly successful person will do like maybe you know, like the Joe Abercrombie reread post that I do. I think they get, you know, kind of in the first week or two, they'll get like 2,500 page views, which is, which is getting better, right? Like that's a fairly significant number. But then if you go to like, you know, the Tor.com post on like Star Wars uh, fandom theories, right? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's like 50,000 page views. Yeah. You know, it's it's because it's not because Tor.com's readership. They don't people don't go to they don't type in www.tor.com anymore and like read the feed. Yeah, like nobody does that anymore. The RSS feed dead. It has been dead for several years, and so I just I I am fascinated to see where it goes, and I just and I wonder more and more. I find myself blogging by tweet more and more now, where I just link five or six tweets together. I get and I get immediate feedback on what I want to bitch about. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know? And Twitter is, is creating um, enhancements to even their web browser version of the site to allow people to do that. You reply to your, your first tweet with your second tweet and so on links it all nicely in a uh, in a linear fashion so people can read it uh, right there without having to sort through their timeline. Um, and if you can't tap into that social sphere, sphere you're not really going to get a lot of traffic anyway. And I think that's just going to draw people to continuing to create original content uh, in the areas where they want to discuss it. Um, I have, I wrote a blog well, an essay about Terry Brooks and his impact at fantasy in the late 70s. Posted it to Medium. It, it was never posted to a dribble of ink. Uh, but one time I, you know, got a little curious and went and looked at the, the traffic for it and compared it against the most successful um, feature articles I've published on a dribble of ink. And it would be in the top five in terms of traffic. And, you know, that's not people going to Medium and, and finding my article. Um, just like it's not people going to the front page of a dribble of ink and finding the new stuff that I've posted. It's because their friends um, posted about it online on uh, Metafilter or Reddit or wherever. And that was a moment where I realized that it doesn't matter where you're writing. It matters that you have something interesting that the greater readership is going to share amongst their friends. And where does that leave us? I think we went to a point where blog posts could get away with being 300 or 400 words. Like, remember the old days of a review on like a website? I remember the first review I posted was like 500 words and it was sort of like, this is what happened in the book. Gee whiz, I liked it. This part kind of bugged me. Conclusion, right? And that was fine. You know, reviews could be like that five years ago. Um, they really can't get away with being like that anymore and get anybody to read them. But yeah. but then I, and then long form has become really popular, right? Like these long in the last couple of years, I think it's become really popular. We sort of have this expectation that like things actually be more meaningful. We've seen the rise of websites like uh, like Grantland, for example, it's in the sports world, which is like all long form pieces. And I know Tor.com has sort of said like we would they want to do more long form. Cameron Hurley's got great feedback for her long form blog post, but if if social media is becoming more and more prominent and clickbait is becoming more and more the thing, do you think we're going to move away from long form again? Um, no, I don't think so. I think a site like medium.com is, is a sign that long form still has a place. Uh, the way though that they uh, encourage interaction within an article by allowing highlighting and commenting mid article rather than saving it for a big swath at the end is a way to kind of get that frantic, fast-paced nature of something like Twitter in a long-form piece. Um, when you talk about reviews and how they've sort of adjusted themselves over the years, I think, I mean, I would argue that the overwhelming majority of reviews are still short, uh, you know, 100 to 500 word pieces, but they appear on Goodreads, they appear on Amazon um, as user reviews. And so people, if they're dedicated to a blog and they want to read this author's opinions on a book, they don't want something that they can find on, on Goodreads. And I mean, at the end of the day, as somebody who, you know, I started as a fiction writer when I was a little kid, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I've always wanted to do. Um, I'm drawn in long form. Uh, you know, I'd write long form articles day after day. And I find that, you know, Sometimes you, you spend, you know, three to five hours working on a long form piece, you post it and it gets, you know, crickets. And then the next day you post a, you know, a Game of Thrones meme 
on your blog and it gets 1500 page views like in minutes. And that's frustrating. Part of it, I think, is the internet design has actually created a place for long form that maybe didn't exist before. You know, the way that we're laying out websites, the way that yep. uh, typography in the new browsers is capable of being displayed and the way CSS is able to display things. You yep. know, like it's actually readable now, much yep. more so than it was five years ago. Well, and what's really interesting is that you're starting to see websites that, for their feature essays, uh, for their feature articles, cover articles, are mimicking uh, design flaws existed in magazine, print magazine layouts for decades. And it's creating something that's incredibly engaging and pleasing to the eyes. But in addition to that, you have all of the multimedia aspects available uh, so all of a sudden you have this really expansive, interesting, engaging way to navigate through the narrative that the, the writer is, is trying to bring you through. One of the things that I really love about Medium, to go back to it, is that it's super clean, it's super simple, but it focuses on making that number of options and making them beautiful. Um, and I think that that encourages people to, to keep writing um, and to work on something to a you know, greater degree than they might if they're trying to struggle through a, you know, the word processor and blogger or WordPress, uh, which frankly are still a little clunky. And so those tools and the way that the web is, has evolved from a design standpoint um, is absolutely something that I think is, is encouraging people to engage more with what they're reading. On the flip side, of course, there's, you know, Places like BuzzFeed that see incredible amounts of traffic without um, necessarily bothering with any of the. But I think uh, I think there's only upwards to go in terms of the way we think about designing print for the web or text for the web, writing for the web. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. All right. Well, so you're a blogger. I'm still mostly a blogger. Uh, one of the great advantages of blogging in this science fiction and fantasy world is that you get to read lots of lots of awesome things before uh, everybody else or or you get a lot more of it that comes in front of you in any case and i know one of the biggest challenges for me as a blogger has always been like looking at an enormous pile of books and trying to figure out what the hell i need to be reading and uh, so i thought well i've got you here we could talk a little bit about what we're reading and what what people should be checking out so anything catching your eye lately uh yeah i've been um reading a book it's not coming out until september so it's a bit of a tease for listeners but it's uh it's called updraft by fran Watt. it's this wonderful fantasy set in a sort of cloud-born city um of bone towers so it's all these uh towers made of bone that together form a city the population uh is also able to fly with these um wings i guess not uh you know not organic wings, but wings that they've built. And so it revolves around a, a series of, of people, um, one of whom wants to become a traitor. Fran Wilde plays with a lot of elements of post-apocalyptic fiction in a way, because this is a, you know, there are hints of, of what came before when people used to live below the clouds and how awful it was and how to get away from it, they had to rise. They have to keep rising and just beautiful world building. But Fran Wilde, uh, she has such a reservation in the way that she draws out her world. She resists the temptation to lay everything out before the reader in big, you know, info dumps. 
and instead just focuses on the story and reveals the world as it's necessary to tell her story. And the result is just this incredibly engaging, tight, fast-paced fantasy that I can't put down. Highly recommend it. Well, a copy of that just uh, was delivered to my door the other day, so I'm going to check it out. She's scheduled to be on the Rocket Talk at some point, so I'm glad to hear that it's good. Uh, <laughs> I like Fran a great deal. And so yeah, that's, that's, Fran's fantastic. That's always comforting when somebody you like a great deal is... Uh, is putting out good work. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm reading a book that's not out. God, I don't think until like early next year. In fact, um, and it's by a good friend of mine, Robert Jackson Bennett, and it's City of Blades, oh, which is the sequel. I'm so jealous of you. Which is a sequel to City of Stairs, of course, which everybody loved last year. And um, it's sort of awkward, you know. So, like, when you have a friend whose work you don't like, that's awkward, right? Might be even Absolutely. more awkward when it's a friend whose work you really admire. Because, like, you're friends, and so you don't want to, you know, I mean, you don't want to lay it on too thick, right? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Rob's a good example. I met him for the first time in London last year, and I'd recently read City of Stairs, and it was my first exposure to his work. I was, like, magically in love with his book. It was amazing. It was my favorite book last year by a country mile, and here's this guy. I think he's younger than I am, and I meet him in person, and he's... I didn't know what to do of like, I love your book. I, I want to give you a hug, but I don't know if that's appropriate. <laughs> City of Blades is like City of Stairs, only like a hundred times better. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of this thriller espionage thing. I just can't quite get over how artfully it's done. There's almost no battle or, or sort of traditional fantasy stuff uh, for most of the book. It's really just sort of this espionage thriller, but like, you know, I want to pee myself the whole time. So anyway, I, I highly recommend City of Blades when people can get their hands on it, you know, a year from now or whenever it's actually coming out. But, well, if uh, they haven't read City of Stairs, they need to do that first because it's amazing also. It really is, although I will say City of Blades or City, yeah, City of Blades is so well done, you could really read it without having read City of Stairs. It's, oh, wow. It's, uh, you know, a lot of the same characters are back, but it's not narratively entwined. So you can... There's some nuance maybe you won't pick up on, but honestly, you could really read them out of order and almost get all the enjoyment out of both of them. And I'm also reading The Water Knife by uh, Paolo Bacigalupi, which came out today, I think. And I'm not quite sure what to think of that thing yet. It's very Paolo. Have you read Wind Up Girl? I haven't read any of his work outside of a few short stories and novellas, so I, I can't really speak uh, to him, but uh, I can't imagine how you follow up The Wind-Up Girl, because this is his first adult novel since writing The Wind-Up Girl. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. And it's it's brutal. It's brutal is what it is. Um, it, you know, it's the story of what, what sort of what could happen if we don't take care of our water supply. And, and where that could lead us. And he really just sort of says, he looks at a lot of all the horrible things that could happen. And it's true, right? Like, it could happen. This may be a future that we're walking into. But um, there's a way that he goes about it that is very didactic and very heavy-handed at times about sort of like warning us of this future. And I, I don't know how I feel about that entirely. I mean, it's a, it's like the wind-up girl in that brutal nature and that sort of admonishing way, but it's much better written. It's, it's, you know, he's clearly emerged as a brilliant writer, but it's a really hard thing to read, you know? Yeah. And I read it right after I finished Uprooted by Naomi Novik, which is like 
this wonderful, joyful book uh, that's just so fun and fresh, uh, very similar to like my reaction to the Goblin Emperor last year. And to follow it up with the water knife is just sort of like, you know, taking body blows. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I read um, The Mirror Empire and then back to back with Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. And I had to just take a total sabbatical from, from dark fiction after that. Uh, and I've sort of been on this kick of, of brighter, more positive uh, fiction because it, it certainly takes something out of you to um, – to be thrust into a world like that, especially by authors as, as skilled and sharp as somebody like Patrick Lupi. I've been planning a show here very soon with, um, with two bloggers. Uh, they're going to come on and we're going to talk about Goblin Emperor and Station Eleven and sort of go through them as, uh, as works of fiction. Uh, be interesting to see how that turns out because they are rather different. Yeah, rather different, both <laughs> enchanting and, and, engaging in a different way two of my favorite novels last year so i'll uh, i'll look forward to that episode that 2014 was a very good year and 20, 2015 shaping up to be uh very good as well it's got to be enjoyable for you to be a part of a good 2015 year of fiction we here at rocket talk wish you the best of luck with tide of shadows and other stories appreciate you being on the show tonight aiden yeah thanks so much for having me it was it was fun to talk and i'm always glad to come around this has been rocket talk